to our second guest. So, um, she's making her UK debut here tonight, and I'm very thrilled that she's chosen the salon for her UK debut. Homegoing begins with two half-sisters growing up in the mid-18th century in what will become Ghana. Effia marries a British officer and leads a life of relative privilege at the Cape Coast castle. Essie is captured and sold into slavery. While Effia enjoys the airy upper floors of the castle, Essia is trapped below in a dungeon awaiting transport to the new world. Homegoing moves across centuries, chapter by chapter, character by character, generation by generation, from old to new Ghana, to pre-Civil War Alabama, to present-day California. It dazzles rather than skips, and it will leave you with tears in your eyes and blood on your hands. Please welcome Ya Jesse. So you're going to start by reading for us, I think, from the beginning. Yeah, that's right. I'll and I will just say that she arrived from the United States five hours ago. <laughs> yeah, so you're doing very well. Thank you. <laughs> I'll just read from the first chapter. Uh, this is titled Athea. The night Athea Otre was born into the musky heat of Fanti land, a fire raged through the woods just outside her father's compound. It moved quickly, tearing a path for days. It lived off the air. It slept in caves and hidden trees. It burned up and through, unconcerned with what wreckage it left behind until it reached an Ashanti village. There, it disappeared, becoming one with the night. Afia's father, Kobi Otre, left his first wife, Baba, with a new baby so that he might survey the damage to his yams, that most precious crop known far and wide to sustain families. Kobi had lost seven yams, and he felt each loss as a blow to his own family. He knew then that the memory of the fire that burned then fled would haunt him, his children, and his children's children for as long as the line continued. When he came back into Baba's hut to find Afia, the child of the night's fire, shrieking into the air, he looked at his wife and said, we will never again speak of what happened today. The villagers began to say that the baby was born of the fire, that this was the reason Baba had no milk. Afia was nursed by Kobi's second wife, who had just given birth to a son three months before. Afia would not latch on, and when she did, her sharp gums would tear at the flesh around the woman's nipples until she became afraid to feed the baby. Because of this, Afia grew thinner, skin on small bird-like bones with a large black hole of a mouth that expelled a hungry cry which could be heard throughout the village even on the days Baba did her best to smother it covering the baby's lips with the rough palm of her left hand. Love her, Kobi commanded, 
as though love were as simple an act as lifting food up from an iron plate and past one's lips. At night, Baba dreamed of leaving the baby in the dark forest so that the god Nyame could do with her as he pleased. Afia grew older. The summer after her third birthday, Baba had her first son. The boy's name was Fifi, and he was so fat that sometimes when Baba wasn't looking, Afia would roll him along the ground like a ball. <laughs> the first day that Baba let Afia hold him, she accidentally dropped him. The baby bounced on his buttocks, landed on his stomach, and looked up at everyone in the room, confused as to whether or not he should cry. He decided against it, but Baba, who had been stirring Benku, lifted her stirring stick and beat Afia across her bare back. Each time the stick lifted off of the girl's body, it would leave behind hot, sticky pieces of Benku that burned into her flesh. By the time Baba had finished, Afia was covered with sores, screaming and crying. From the floor, rolling this way and that on his belly, Fifi looked at Afia with his saucer eyes, but made no noise. Kobe came home to find his other wives attending to Afia's wounds and understood immediately what had happened. He and Baba fought well into the night. Afia could hear them through the thin walls of the hut where she lay on the floor, drifting in and out of a feverish sleep. In her dream, Kobe was a lion and Baba was a tree. The lion plucked the tree from the ground where it stood and slammed it back down. The tree stretched its branches in protest and the lion ripped them off one by one. The tree, horizontal, began to cry red ants that traveled down the thin cracks between its bark. The ants pooled on the soft earth around the top of the tree trunk. And so the cycle began. Baba beat Afia, Kobe beat Baba. By the time Afia had reached age 10, she could recite a history of the scars on her body. The summer of 1764, when Baba broke yams across her back. The spring of 1767, when Baba bashed her left foot with a rock, breaking her big toe so that it now always pointed away from the other toes. For each scar on Afia's body, there was a companion scar on Baba's, but that didn't stop mother from beating daughter, father from beating mother. Matters were only made worse by Afia's blossoming beauty. When she was 12, her breasts arrived, two lumps that sprung from her chest as soft as mango flesh. The men of the village knew that first blood would soon follow and they waited for the chance to ask Baba and Kobe for her hand. The gift started. One man tapped palm wine better than anyone else in the village, but another's fishing nets were never empty. Kobe's family feasted off of Afia's burgeoning womanhood. Their bellies, their hands were never empty. In 1775, Ajua Edu became the first girl of the village to be proposed to by one of the British soldiers. She was light-skinned and sharp-tongued. 
In the mornings, after she had bathed, she rubbed shea butter all over her body, underneath her breasts and between her legs. Afia didn't know her well, but she had seen her naked one day when Baba sent her to carry palm oil to the girl's hut. Her skin was slick and shiny, her hair regal. The first time the white man came, Ajwa's mother asked Afia's parents to show him around the village while Ajwa prepared herself for him. Can I come? Afia asked, running after her parents as they walked. She heard Baba's no in one ear and Kobi's yes in the other. Her father's ear won, and soon Afia was standing before the first white man she had ever seen. He is happy to meet you the translator said as the white man held his hand out to Afia. She didn't accept it. Instead, she hid behind her father's leg and watched him. He wore a coat that had shiny gold buttons down the middle. It strained against his paunch. His face was red as though his neck were a stump on fire. He was fat all over and sweating huge droplets from his forehead and above his upper lip. Afia started to think of him as a rain cloud, sallow and wet and shapeless. Please, he would like to see the village, the translator said, and they all began to walk. They stopped first by Afia's own compound. This is where we live, Afia told the white man, and he smiled at her dumbly, his green eyes hidden in fog. He didn't understand. Even after his translator spoke to him, he didn't understand. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I've, I've read the book three times. Oh, wow. Now. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's incredible. So I want to begin um, by talking about where Ifia ends up after the village and where her half-sister ends up as well, which is the, which is the Cape Coast Castle right. um, in what is now Ghana. So it's a real place. Tell us about it. Sure. Um, so the Cape Coast Castle is a slave fort that still sits um, in Cape Coast, Ghana, and um, you can still visit it today. I started this novel um, because I took a tour to the castle myself in 2009 um, with my friend Stefan, who's here tonight. Um, and we walked around the castle and just listened to the tour guide talk to us about how the British soldiers who used to live and work in this castle would sometimes marry the local women, which was something I had never heard before. Um, and then the children from these unions would be sent to England for school, and then they came back and kind of started to form Ghana's middle and upper class. Um, and then, you know, we walked around that upper level, and from there he took us down to see the dungeons um, where they kept the slaves before sending them through the middle passage. Um, and there's really nothing, nothing like standing in that dungeon. Uh, you know, to this day it still smells, it's still dark and grimy. Um, and I was so struck by the idea that there could be people, um, you know, being kept here for three months at a time uh, while above these free women were walking around kind of unaware of, of the huge enterprise that was going on uh, below them. And so I kind of immediately started this novel with those two sisters juxtaposed, the idea of these two women, the one 
who would be married to a British soldier and the one who would be sent off um, as a slave. How aware do you think were the people who were upstairs of, of what was going on downstairs? Um, yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's not a big space that you describe. They must have seen people going in there. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they knew. Um, I'm sure they knew what slavery was, you know, I'm sure they knew uh, what was to what was happening um, below them, but I don't know that they knew what was to become of them. Um, I think that was the thing that struck me the most, you know, these, these people were put on boats and sent away, and so you never got to really see the result um, of this thing that, that you were a part of um, upstairs. Uh, why were you there? Why did you take the tour at that point in your life? Yeah, I had received a grant from Stanford University where I was doing my undergraduate degree um, to travel to Ghana and do research for a novel. Um, so I was kind of there um, just bopping around trying to see if anything came up for me and it hadn't really before I went to that castle. Were you so working on anything else before you got to the castle? Or no, I was working loosely on, on a novel kind of about mothers and daughters. Um, I didn't really have a very um, strong plan in place. Mm -hmm. um, and so the castle was really kind of the, the first, I don't know, lightning bolt strike for me. I think one of the, one of the aspects of the story which which really hit me hard was the role of black Africans in the slave trade that I hadn't been, hadn't been aware of. So mm -hmm. I kind of understood about the, 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 the middle passage and I understood ha about, about slavery in America, I, I, you know, having lived in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so I understood about that, but I didn't, I didn't know about the role of, of tribal people in capturing and trading, which were two quite separate activities. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure, I mean, my kind of first um, introduction to, to thinking about it more deeply was simply the idea that the, that the British could have been marrying the local women. I, I suppose that was like my first um, foray into understanding um, that, that uh, my people were involved in some way. Um, and as I dug further, I found this great book called The Door of No Return by William St. Clair um, that takes you through life in the castle and it kind of had a chapter on the women, a chapter on the children, um, and, and I started to kind of piece together uh, what it might have looked like on the Ghanaian side of things um, from the Ashanti people who, who had a lot of power in that time um, capturing slaves to the Fanti who lived on the coast and kind of acted as middlemen who would um, bring in the captives and, and sell them on um, to, the, to the people at the forts. Um, and, and this is the kind of, these are the kinds of um, pieces of information that I had kind of heard whispered for, for many years, but hadn't ever spent any time, I guess, um, trying, trying to, to pay more attention to it and to hear it more loudly until, until I started writing this novel. Mm -hmm. And how did you feel when you started to dig into that story? Um, I mean, I think anyone who, who goes, to, goes to the castle, but particularly anyone who studies the history of slavery, um, I, I think feels this kind of mixture of, of rage and grief, you know? Um, and, and the more you learn, uh, for me, the more I learned about, um, about Ghanaian participation in it, the, the more you know, am amplified those feelings of rage and grief became, you know? Mm. Um, especially, you know, having, come from a country, Ghana, that, that had this involvement in slavery and then ending up, uh, I grew up in Alabama, so ending up in a state where the you know, effects of slavery are still so strongly felt, 
um, that that wasn't lost on me. What was it like for you growing up as an African in America as a, instead of an, uh, being an African American? Yeah, I mean, I think my parents really wanted us to have um, this upbringing that was very uh, focused and Afrocentric, and um, you know, everywhere we went, my parents were sure to build community with other West Africans. Um, we moved around a lot when I was young. We lived in Ohio, and then Illinois, and then Tennessee, and then Alabama. And every time we moved, I remember my dad would pull out the phone book and just look up Ghanaian sounding last name. Oh my God. <laughs> that and is so mortifying. Yeah, just call people <laughs> out of the blue. I mean, this is how desperate for community <laughs> uh, we were. Um, and, so, and so for me, my upbringing, you know, at home at least, was very centered around um, kind of continuing or furthering Ghanaian traditions and culture. Um, but then outside of my house, you know, I lived in a predominantly white area in Alabama, and I was, um, you know, not, not a stranger to, to the way that Alabama um, interacts with black people. And so I kind of had this dual identity um, where at home I got to be Ghanaian, but outside of the home I was African American and trying to kind of navigate those two spaces. Um, when I had parents who, who didn't quite understand, you know, what that, what that meant, um, who weren't used to thinking of themselves racially in the way that America kind of makes you have to think about yourself. Yeah. There's a, there's a character much later in the novel called Mar Marjorie who on paper has most in common with you in many ways, but actually when I reread the book, I was thinking more about the character, I don't know how to pronounce the name, Kay, Quay? Quay, Quay. yeah. Um, who, who is one of the characters in the earlier part of the book. And the tone of the book changes. It begins in a kind of legendary, kind of fable-esque sort of delivery. And as we get up to the present day, it's very much how people are now. And that's a great skill to capture that, that change in language. But Quay is one of my favorite characters because he, he, is, he is biracial and at the very least bisexual. Mm. And this is the 18th century. Right. Um, you know, and, and he says he could not fully claim either half of himself. Um, and I thought that that, that, that that resounded through the book, and I think also, in, in, not in the sense of your identity, but in the sense of how you felt in America. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think this, um, this book was really um, just an attempt for me to try to navigate all of these different identities that I had grown up with, um, not just you know being a Ghanaian in America, um, having this kind of ethnic background. My, my father is an Ashanti and my mother is Fanti. There's all these like kind of dualisms um, that I was always kind of experiencing in my own house. Um, and I wanted to have, have a book that kind of could parallel all of these experiences and kind of show you side by side what they might look like. There was something that you had written down um, on the, an early document of your book at the top. Um, mm -hmm. I'd like you to talk about what it was, what it was you'd written down, and how it was your way in. Sure, I wrote. Um, you know, I started with the title, and then I wrote uh, what it means to be black in America. That was kind of the <laughs> the too broad idea that I was that I was starting. Just out a little with. idea. Yeah, just, exactly. You know, bite size. Really. <laughs> what does it mean to be black in America? <laughs> Um, yeah, it was really important to me that this book cover um, a, a long period of time. It covers about 250 years of Ghanaian and American history um, because I wanted it to end in the present. I wanted to kind of not just talk about slavery, but talk about the legacy of slavery, to talk about the kinds of things that we have inherited because of this, um, because of this history. Um, Which and is what? I mean, well, in America, I think Trump is, a, is a, you know, a perfect example of the kinds yeah. of things that we've inherited because of these open wounds that we haven't, that we haven't dealt with, that we haven't healed. Um, 
and, and I wanted it to kind of be clear how these things moved, what institutionalized racism means when we, when we say that word, when we say those words, what does it mean, what does it feel like, mm. um, how do you experience that on the body? Roxane Gay said that, that she thinks it's the strongest case that she's yet seen for reparations. Well, how does that make you feel? Oh, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's an incredible statement. I don't know. I mean, I wasn't thinking about that at all when I was writing the book. Um, I started this book when I was a sophomore in college. You know, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but, but I think it's great that these kinds of conversations have opened up, that we got something like um, Ta-Nehisi Coates' The Case for Reparations to kind of lay the groundwork for um, these kind of long-form conversations to, to open up around, um, around the legacy of slavery and, and what we should and, and can do about it. Um, the structure of, of the book, which is very compelling and very fast, I mean, it doesn't, you know, you cover hundreds of years of history, it never feels, it never feels like that. My, main criticism is that there was there were moments where I wanted more yeah um, and I sense that you've cut quite savagely but um, <laughs> the, 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 the structure of generation by generation character by character were there characters that didn't make it um, or did everybody make it that you that you created and did they always end up the way that you thought they would end up mm. so when I first started the novel I had a far more traditional um, structure in mind I thought it would take place in the present and then just flash back to 18th century Ghana to some of those um, some of the things that you heard me read about today so those first two sisters um, and then as I worked I started to realize that I was much more interested in kind of being able to look at how things like slavery and colonialism moved and changed really subtly over a long period of time. Um, and I realized that the time aspect was, was more important to me, I guess, than, um, than the structure that I had was. And so I started to think about ways that I could represent a long period of time um, fictionally. Um, and it took me a, a, long, a long time to kind of give myself permission to write a structure, this, um, this kind of non-traditional structure. Um, but it but feels so natural, it's so weird. Yeah, but it, yeah. Felt like, it felt like the right choice in that it, it allowed you to kind of see the thread um, as it moved very clearly so that you, you didn't um, finish the book like not understanding um, you know, kind of how we got to be where we are, I suppose. And the, very often at the end of each chapter, in almost the last paragraph, sometimes the last line, we just you, we find out the fate of a character. Is that when you decided the fate of the character, or, <laughs> or did, you, did you change your mind? Um, I changed my mind a lot, I guess. I, I didn't work um, with an outline. I actually just worked with a family tree that looks a lot like the one that's at the front of the book. Which is very um, useful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but my family tree also had the dates that the bulk of the chapter um, took place in and then also one thing that was happening historically or politically uh, in that time frame. So something like the advent of cocoa farming to Ghana or the uh, Santua War or um, you know, the Fugitive Slave, Slave Act in America, whatever it was. Um, and so then I would begin each chapter by just researching that thing to mm -hmm. kind of get a sense of um, to get a sense of the atmosphere, I guess, um, and then yeah, and I, I wanted it to feel I wanted it to feel fluid. I wanted it to feel like the the children were kind of reacting to to decisions that their parents had made. So I felt very strongly that I couldn't know a character until I knew his parents. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thinking back to what Philippa was talking about, there's a moment earlier which yeah. is almost word for word about in your book, which is echoed in what Philippa was reading earlier yeah. about choosing to be a, a, a different person. Mm. Um, 
thinking about family trees, um, did it make you think about your own family and your own family history? Have you explored any of that? Are you nervous about exploring any of that, given what you've learned? Um, I, I haven't explored my family tree very much. Um, I know generally um, you know, where my family is from, and, and I could trace it back, I suppose, if I wanted to. I felt pretty strongly that I didn't want to do it while I was writing because I didn't want to feel beholden to kind of telling that, that aspect of the yeah. truth in yeah. any way. Um, but, but it's been really interesting now that the book has come out in the U.S. to have so many people come up to me and talk about how they've started doing their DNA testing kits or, you know, kind of looking into their own family history. And so maybe in a few years I will be ready for that have in you my done own one of those, Have you done one of those DNA I've testing? I've never done it, but my brother did, actually. Yeah. He did one. Um, he, he still is your brother. He's still my brother. <laughs> He made my dad do it, actually. My dad, my dad kept calling it the paternity test. So. <laughs> That's so Jerry Springer. Um, I'll take questions for Yah, please. Yes, here, lady in the front. So uh, the, the, que the question from, for, from Trisha was saying that, um, that the, the, the characters in the novel seem to know fairly early on what is mm -hmm. happening to the people from their area who end up in America. Um, and is that, so, do we know that they knew or did you, is that something that you've created as a, as a novelist? Yeah, and some of the earlier chapters, like by the time you get to the fifth chapter, say um, James's chapter, which is right after um, slavery has ended, um, he knows a lot about what's going on in, to the slaves in America, and, and that, I think, was based off of research. Like, it was getting around, you know, by that point. Um, I don't think the earlier two characters knew, really, um, and so I tried to, to have that be more imaginative, but um, I think certainly by, by the fourth or fifth chapter in this book, everybody knows um, what slavery in America looks like. And it's so interesting the way that that is visited upon different generations, this idea of an inherited trauma or epigenetics. Right. Yeah. You know, there's there's, there's a, the fatal flaw, however, however you want to describe it. There's this, this image of fire, for example, that you began by talking right. about recurs all the way through the book right until the end. Yeah, I really wanted the, the Ghanaian section of, of this book to kind of feel haunted by this great fire um, that we hear about in that first section. And then um, each character of Afia's um, side of the family is kind of visited by fire in some way. And conversely, Essie, her sister, who passes through the Middle Passage, each character on her side is kind of visited by water. So there's these juxtaposed um, ideas of fire and water. Much has been made of the fact that you received a large advance for this. You deserved every penny <laughs> or, or cent. Um, and, um, and the book has been a New York Times bestseller. It's done incredibly well. What do you feel like you want to do next? Oh, <laughs> I mean... No pressure. Are you yeah. <laughs> I think it, it's... Um, this is obviously my first book, and so I, I, it's so interesting to kind of see, um, to see the response and, and, and to... And to feel people's connection to the book has been really wonderful. Um, I think the next step is like finding that place of quiet again so that I can work. Um, that, that's, that's the new, uh, the new hard part. But. Have, have you been invited to do about 5,000 different panels on diversity and publishing yet? <laughs> Not quite yet, but I'm sure they're on the horizon. Those, those invites are winging their way to you <laughs> right now, not from me. Um, anyway, please join me in thanking Yeah, Jesse.
We're going to take an interval now. We'll be back in 30 minutes with the fantastic Andrew O'Hagan.